Welcome to a new conversation with Hanyam Peretz, episode 6, titled From Dogma to Doing Good, A Young Man's Spiritual Journey. In this episode, I have a conversation with Noah Rabinsky, class of 2006. Noah reconsidered the Judaism he grew up with, which he considered dogmatic, and altered it to focus on philanthropy. From his earliest days out of college, he tithes his earnings so that he can engage in philanthropy, which he notes is not only about giving money. In our conversation, we explore the relevance of Judaism, as well as why most people don't think philanthropically. We welcome your feedback and thoughts on our website, anewconvo.com, that is A-N-E-W-C-O-N-V-O.com, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash anewconvo. Enjoy. Growing up as an Orthodox Jew, uh, and actually self-selecting to be, I guess I grew up as a modern Orthodox Jew, and then self-selecting in high school to get uh, even more dogmatic in my Judaism. Uh, and uh, and then over time, really, after going to Israel for what was supposed to be a year, followed by going to Yeshiva University, and that being the clear plan that I had in high school, and the only programs that I even applied to, things kind of took a change while in Israel, almost halfway through the year, and I decided that wasn't really the path that I wanted to go down. Um, and I really have been since then on a journey uh, that has not been anything that I set out to take for myself, but something that uh, has been an evolution of my religious life and even more than my, my, my whole life in terms of trying to find uh, some meaning within within Judaism and in a way that that resonates both for, again, my religious self and then also more holistically for myself. And so I don't know, I, I am definitely not at the end of that path. I don't know if there is an end to that path for me. I think that what I'm fortunate right now to enjoy at this point in time or this chapter of my life is feeling that my Judaism is resonant with me a lot more in terms of my philanthropy than probably anything dogmatic uh, in terms of the Jewish value of giving and the Jewish value of trying to make an impact in the world in a positive way and even, dare I say, to repair the world in some way. It started with the idea of tithing, quite literally, and from the time that I graduated college, uh, setting up a separate checking account where literally 10 cents of every after-tax dollar I made was automatically uh, contributed to that account. And it started with writing 10, 20, 50, $100 checks to different charities. And then a fundamental transformation of my philosophy around that to say, even though I'm not writing, quote, meaningful checks, I don't want to be a check writer. I want to be philanthropic. And to me, that's a lot less about how much money you invest in a given organization or a charity or a mission. It's a lot more about the intentionality you have. And it's funny, as an investor in finance, capital is measured really in two ways. There's financial capital and there's human capital. It's not only about money, it's also about talent. And I think if people were to think about that a lot more philanthropically as well, we would all realize that everybody has the capacity to be a philanthropist, even if you don't have access to financial capital. And that intentionality is something that I was fortunate that a mentor of mine at the time instilled in me. And thankfully, I've been able to not only make an impact 
a little bit more of an impact financially in some of the organizations that I support. Still not nearly as meaningful as many others involved in those organizations. But I have been able to make, in some instances, a differentiated impact in terms of the human capital that I'm able to bring to the equation. And that's very satisfying, but also motivating to know that if you've done it somewhere once before, it's likely that you might be able to do it somewhere else again. And that's exciting and also rewarding uh, to do uh, and, and, and make those impacts. So where's the correlation between Jewish your Jew- and impact? Why do you think it's related? Maybe you're just a, a nice guy that wants to make a difference. To me, being a mensch is core to being Jewish. I was just very uh, involved, I am very involved with the Schusterman Foundation, and I was on a retreat as part of one of their leadership conventions, and somebody senior in the organization posed a great question, which was, is, you know, what is the importance of being Jewish if the whole world lives by Jewish values? That was going to be my follow-up question. Is there something inherently (laughs) valuable in being Jewish? And... I'll tell you, I I think about that a lot, is the truth. Um, I don't have a clear answer to that. If we succeeded in making everybody, you know, behave that way, or if this this was a universal value, do we need Jews? Do we need to be... uh, (coughs) uh, Do do we need this this distinctive identity of being Jewish and and, um, being Jews? Let, let's call it. <coughs> let's call Excuse it American. Let's call it American. Let's call it you no know, New York. Let's call it something that's more embracing and, and not so divisive. My visceral answer to that is no. I don't know that there's something inherently important about being Jewish, and it's a, it's a very utopian idea. But if everybody was living with those by those values in the world and there was no then then there would be no need as long as those values were recurring in daily life i've given it a lot of thought the purpose of judaism is to make the jew an outlier it is essentially to be an outlier to be distinctive and in a certain sense to reflect um the one outlier being namely the divine god god is an outlier of a being in other words it, obviously, accepting, assuming that you accept the existence of God, sure. but God is this being that is an outlier by, by all measures, um, omnipotent, you know, just a different type of being. And in a certain sense, we as Jews have to reflect that outlier uh, type of, 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 of character by adapting an outlier type of life, an outlier type of routine or I'll use the word distinctive, or I'll use the word independent. I'll use them all inter- interchangeably. Uh, independent meaning that independent from, from the natural instinct of the individual, independent from the assumptions or the, the conventions of, of society. So take, for example, philanthropy. Philanthropy mm-hmm. is a wonderful example of that. The instinct is, or the convention is that I work hard, I earn the money, the money is mine, and I can use it for my benefit as I see fit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
tithing, mm-hmm. which you do, is basically an acknowledgement that I have a responsibility to people outside of myself. Um, that is, in a certain sense, that is an, an outlier type of thinking or distinctive type of thinking or, or an independent type of thinking. And the uh, observance of Shabbat and Akashrud are examples of bringing distinctiveness or independence in a certain sense where I'm doing something really outlier out there one day a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are obviously there's the details in it, but, and they're all pretty wacky, and they don't, don't necessarily contribute to to rest, but they are that distinctiveness. Mm-hmm. And the same thing into my diet, I do the same, and I'm in a certain sense developing or practicing my uh, my my outlier muscle, so that uh, my instinct of being self self-interested, self-serving, mm-hmm. uh, self, self, uh, selfish, selfish. Yeah. yeah selfish. And, 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 and which is a necessary tool for survival, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't dominate my, my, my thinking and my lifestyle. So then, okay. So if you, let's play that out for a second. So then you become selfless. If I don't think that's naturally possible, well, just you approach selflessness. You develop the selfless muscle. I don't think. I don't think we can humanly become selfless. Okay. So I think we're innate, innately selfish. Okay. Self preserving. I, I, I won't even call it selfish. Self preserving. So what is the? What's the desired outcome in the scenario that you just portrayed? Is that there is a society at large mm-hmm. humanity at large uh, lives in a state where while self-preserving is uh, a need the sense of connection to others um, and to a betterment of of, of, of of the world at large is the norm behavior Right, so, and that would be true for Jewish and non-Jewish people alike. Correct. Right. There's so, a name for that. What's that? The Messianic Age. Right, well, exactly. But that's, I mean, in theory, I think what you're, when I said selflessness and you pushed back, I think you'd bucket that into the form of perfection. That's an idea of a perfect, an absolute perfection. So the idea of this Messianic Age being a state of almost perfection and we're trying to approach that to the best of our ability, right? So there's a lot that I'm thinking about. I guess what I would say is, and I'm not being cynical at all. Uh, I honestly am not. I think that there's a lot of beauty in this, in what you said. I think there's a lot of value and importance to that. But again, I don't think that that's inherently valuable and true for, or it is true. I don't think it's inherently valuable and required for every individual, Jewish or not. And the reason for that is because I, I don't think that, let's take philanthropy again for an example. You're saying that that's a selfless act. And what I said earlier was actually the funny part about it is the barrier to philanthropy is that I agree with you that people think it's selfish. People, people oftentimes, not in a nefarious way, but you know, just easier to kind of, you made your money and you want to keep it and you're sick, you paid, 
live in New York City, you paid a fortune in taxes. It's like, oh, I got to give more. Like, I, what? All of a sudden, a capitalist becomes a socialist, and it's like, I'm, you know, what, what am I, who am I in it for? And the irony is, but if you actually gave, you'd feel even better. And people just, if only you knew. Now, one of the brilliance, part of the brilliance of the dogma of tithing is the collection of so much wisdom to say, over time, enough people probably gave, or, or maybe even God said, you have to do this because I'm telling you, better than you can tell it for yourself, or know for yourself, that if you do this, you'll actually even selfishly feel better. Now, what's the value of kashrut? And what's, I mean, listen, again, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of kashrut, and I don't know um, the origin of the, I don't remember all the origins of the commandments associated with kashrut. There is also value. It's in, pretty simple, straightforward. Don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. But without, the reasoning behind, there isn't, right? There isn't. It's a coke. There isn't, yeah. So, there's also value psychologically in subscribing and going all into the package deal, right? And living a certain discipline every minute of your life and being cognizant and mindful and the blessings before eating anything and the blessings after and the idea of being so appreciative is so beautiful and valuable. But again, I push back and say, but what about somebody who otherwise is just constantly appreciative and doesn't need to be, doesn't need that instilled in him or her? I, I don't know. I, again, I think, I think that a lot of the practice is a very wise collection of practices that help us as individuals be our best selves collectively. Not any one specific action in and of itself is important. And if it was, then they're just, you know, nobody would agree on anything because even the most observant of observant disagree on very specific minutiae. But we can go down that rabbit hole, you know. I think um, the idea is much bigger. And if people are able to and willing to pursue the core motivation behind those disciplines, where those, where those disciplines are trying to take people, whether they use those rules or not, they'll find satisfaction and happiness and actually live. And that's kind of, to me, I, I think, I think, I think a part of you know, the goal, much more so. It's, it's about the forest, not the trees. So I want to go to your point of selfless. And actually that, that provides you happiness. And Selfishly. It, 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 no, it really is... It really is a, a strange concept. I, I, I actually agree with you 100%. And I think that that selflessness is liberating. There's something liberating about the idea where you, uh, you are able to not feel that you are so captivated by your wealth. Well, let me clarify a couple of things. I don't, I don't think of myself as selfless at all. I think of, honestly, I'm not, I, I genuinely don't. I think there are, there are certain things that I try to do that are for others. I wouldn't say that that's selfless. No, I mean, in, in, as you said, everyone's inherently selfish, and I think the overwhelming majority of my time is focused on myself. No, I, I, everyone is, I, I, want, I want to correct myself, I don't think everybody is inherently selfish. I think everybody's inherently self-preserving. And 
that self-preserving comes along with a with a, with a with a long list of insecurities yep. that we're concerned that if we do certain things, we will we will harm our self-preservation. Okay. So sorry, I, didn't, I cut you no, off. So I, no, so so I'm not. Just, I wanted to correct. You. I don't think people are, are, are. I think I don't want to. Selfish makes it. It 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 it, it makes it sound too childish or too 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 dark. Yeah. Uh, too negative. Too, messy, too negative. Yeah. 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 Um, but but why aren't you willing to give yourself the description of being selfless? Well, that the word selfless is such a the concept of selfish and selfless is kind of a it seems to be a, a pretty binary concept, and I don't think that that's the right way to think about it. I think that there are there are moments of selflessness. Okay. That I probably employ as do as is everybody. By the way. The goal, I think, or part of the goal, at least being philanthropic, is, is to try to think. It's not even selflessness or selfishness. It's about thinking about more than yourself. Think. And that's not even selfish or selfless. That's just about, I think, being a member of, a, of the community, whatever community that is, and trying to better that community with intention, activity, and when, when possible, money. But really with whatever, more than, I mean, with whatever resources you can bring to bear to make that community on whatever scale, your household or the entire world and everything in between a better place. So let me take this a little in a different direction. Sure. Do you consider yourself in your age group and amongst your social circle, this is the average thinking of most people you know, or do you find yourself to be an anomaly in this form of thinking? I definitely think about this differently than most people my age. That's because I was fortunate at an early age to be in the presence of people who instilled these ideas in me. And I was lucky to benefit from actually listening to them early on. And a big motivation that I have personally, in terms of the work that I do philanthropically, is to try to support the different things that friends of mine and sometimes strangers are doing. As simple as giving a donation on an online Facebook fundraising initiative. Random one. That someone just posts, right, that I see. That for a cause that resonates, I mean, for not, not for something I fundamentally disagree with, sure. but like, but there's value, you know, I, an allocation of my philanthropic pie goes to, pardon the pun, but blind support of others' initiatives. Because as you said earlier in a different context, there's something, there's a, there's a muscle that needs to be exercised. And it's not only about the impact that I can have, but how do I help others have an impact in the way that they can have it? And that's hugely valuable. And that's huge leverage. And that's what, that's what creates a community of giving. I think you're a freak <laughs> because you're speaking with such clarity and such wisdom, but making it sound so simple and so common sense, it's like it's inevitable. When you know that it's not that simple. Generally, I don't find people thinking the way you do on this topic. Thank you. I've never thanked somebody for calling me a freak, but I'll take that as a compliment. I, um, I've just chosen, luckily, to practice exercising this muscle more than most people my age, no differently than you've probably chosen to practice prayer more than the average person your age. Have you ever considered starting a campaign or a to get young people to commit to tithing? No, I've never thought about it. Strategically, the idea of me starting something new, I think my efforts are better suited to helping existing organizations. Well, I think you would be a tremendous role model and a motivator uh, for young people coming out of college to make the tithing pledge almost similar to what they have you know they have like the, the billionaires what is that pledge the 
Yeah, we're using big words here. You know that they, they they're making a pledge to give away their yeah, sure. wealth. Well, yeah. Uh, From hearing your story, it seems like it all started when you made that commitment to tithe. Yeah. And once you made that commitment, that's where it all began. And if we could get college students who, when they start their first job out of college, yeah, they make that pledge. Whoever's listening to this conversation, I would like you to encourage you to consider taking a pledge to tithe, and particularly if you're a student, uh, to make the pledge that when you get your first job. You do like Noah did and take a 10% of your income after taxes and set it aside. And this is sanctified uh, money that you will be using to help others, whether it's an organization or whether it's individually. Can I, can I just, I would actually ask that people do an amount that they think they'd be comfortable with. And I say, I don't, again, in the spirit of not being dogmatic about it. I actually think the the irony is, I really believe this, that if you start somewhere in earnest and you start to flex this muscle, eventually you're going to have to convince yourself not to give more than 10%. But start somewhere and then it, it actually becomes, it'll be so fulfilling that you start to blur the line between what's yours and what's to be given. Tzedakah is perhaps one of the most important mitzvot. Mm-hmm. And that is because if all mitzvot are meant to liberate the person mm-hmm. from their instincts. So for instance, I'll go back to kashrut. The point of kashrut is to liberate you from the instinct to eat whatever you would like. Mm-hmm. The point of Shabbat is to liberate you from the instinct of to do whatever you want, anytime you want. One day a week, you don't do what you want. The one that is the most difficult to do is to take something that you worked hard for mm-hmm. and that rightfully belongs to you and to give that away. That is the most challenging and therefore the most liberating act a person can do. And that's why tzedakah is such an important part of, uh, of Judaism. Dogmatically, if you... If <laughs> If uh, if you'd like to put it that way, however you want to see it, dogmatic or not, it's critical, and uh, and I've never heard anybody speak about it the way you do. Thank you. I, I, I guess I uh... divine existence. How do you understand that? I don't know. I've struggled a lot with it. I think there were po- there were points in my life, particularly in high school, I would have said with absolute clarity that there were many instances in. Davening Shacharit, for example, that I was having a very clear conversation with my creator, like as as clear as this conversation. I mean, honest to God, I don't enjoy that same clarity now. That doesn't mean it it's not there. And it also doesn't mean it ever was there. I, I just, I don't know. You know, I feel fulfilled in, in other ways in my Judaism, right? And in my life. That's, I don't mean to deviate from your question, but the, the, the direct answer to your question is, I don't know what divine existence. I believe in a God, but in, in, with Jewish values. Um, but beyond that, I really don't have any eloquent or well-thought-out response. Because you did mention it, so that's why I, I went back to it. I think divinity is also, as much as it may be a real thing, it's also an ideal. And it's something, you, you talked about messianic times as being something to kind of, you know, we, we then extrapolated that to be a state of perfection or, you know, whatever that even means, utopia. I think this is an ideal to strive for. Right, the idea that there's humans exist as an element of God, and the idea is to approach God to the best of our ability in a divine way is an idea, right, and something to strive for. And maybe it's also real. It could also. I'm not saying that to the exclusion of being real. I don't yet know if it's real, and maybe I'll never know. But it's at times it has felt real, but I, I don't yet. It doesn't know. I don't know that it's as real to me as the table that we're sitting in front of. You know, but I don't know that I care. It's it's still it's the, the value and striving for that is is what is fulfilling to me and what is a lot more important than knowledge of the reality of the existence. I would perhaps offer offer to say that a divine uh, existence is a liberating existence. 
100%. And tzedakah provides that in the realest way. Uh, you are liberating yourself from your need for self-preservation. I mentioned this earlier. All of Judaism is, is all about creating that liberation, including our tefillot. Our tefillot is for us to connect with, to liberate ourselves from our restrictive capacity to engage only with what we see and what we sense and allows us to engage with a reality which we can only imagine, namely the divine. Yeah, that's, I mean, inherently the, the concept behind the word transcendental. Right, I mean, that's the idea of tefillah, mm-hmm. is to transcend. But the but to transcend something, you kind of have to experience or understand it to then elevate almost through it to something else, right? And I think that that's why, again, there's, I don't keep coming back to this, but the discipline of the physical is something that, you know, the experience of, again, putting on tefillin or doing so, physically preparing yourself to then be in a position to have the capacity to transcend and then hopefully to transcend. But the goal is the transcendence. Not everybody needs the preparation to get there. Some people can just wake up and they have the gift of being able to, trend, to, to, to just get on that level with their creator. Other people need the, the prep in order to do it. You know, there is a, a custom that goes back to the times of the Talmud is to give charity before prayer mm-hmm. because they both possess this transcendental element. Mm-hmm. No, I think it boils down to... Uh, you being uh, a spiritually gifted individual. I think you're a spiritual person, and, and that's why you've come to this conclusion or this lifestyle or these commitments that you describe. Would you describe yourself as a spiritual person? Yes. I, yes is the answer. I think um, I don't fully understand the concept, to be honest with you. Um, I've, I find, listen, I find satisfaction in material good is probably as much and, and probably more than the average person. Um, I think just if for no other reason than I've had the benefit of having incredible experiences and, you know, nicer material goods than the average person, for, for sure than the average person. But there's never been satisfaction that I've felt that's been on the same level as spiritual satisfaction, which for me most most resonantly or resonatingly, I don't know the word, has been from giving. I mean, everybody has a capacity for spirituality. Uh, some people, though, it's they're more gifted spiritually. Some people are less gifted spiritually. And, 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 and I would define spirituality as the capacity to uh, see beyond yourself, uh, to engage in something beyond yourself, to liberate yourself from... Uh, instinct of, of self-preservation or self-interest uh, and it plays itself out in many ways um, and uh, one thing for certain I'll say it, it's not exclusively in prayer uh, somebody could be could pray a lot but they're not necessarily a spiritual person sure um, and and you know something I'm trying to do and, and I, I want to get people to be more spiritual mm-hmm uh, to get them to be more spiritually sensitive, to, 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 for, you know, let's put it, to be willing to engage in spirituality, see it for the richness that it, it has to offer, uh, and be willing to, to pursue it and develop it. And it develops on, on a variety of scales. It develops in prayer, mm-hmm. and it develops in philanthropy. And they each play a different role. 
uh, they each develop, they each work on a different part of our, our of our human psyche or our human human experience, developing the spirituality either within our, you know, within our fear of self preservation, which is our money, or to develop spirituality in our capacity to imagine outside of ourselves, which prayer has to offer. I don't know. What do you say to that? The, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely curious what your perception is of the biggest impediment to people doing that. I mean, obviously, on the giving money side, I mean, it's obvious that people just are protective over over what they've earned. But again, I, I'd come back to that, which that, that's actually not the impediment. The impediment is the lack of maybe they just haven't been exposed or inspired in the right way to give it a shot. And I think if more people gave it a shot over a modest amount of time, they'd get there. So that's really more the impediment. Well, in these other capacities, what do you think is the impediment? Um, I think we don't speak about it enough. I think we don't speak about it enough in these terms. Um, And coach people, educate people, uh, make it something that uh, is to be be valued. Um, I think that's, that's one reason. Another reason is because as human beings, uh, we, are, we are to a great degree spiritually handicapped. In other words, your spirituality requires you to, be, to, to see outside of yourself, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to explore the beyond, to, to be liberated from yourself. Well, you know, uh, let's speak, using the example of prayer, uh, prayer requires you to engage with the imagination as opposed to the, the, the imagery or the, or the tangible uh, so that requires to go to, that requires a certain effort. It, and it, 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 it's counterintuitive. Let's put it this. I think that's the key word. Spirituality is counterintuitive. Well, I, I actually I agree with everything you said until that point. I don't, I don't think it's counterintuitive. I think it's, I mean, I think, again, I think it's a muscle that needs to be exercised like anything else, literally like your bicep. I mean, if you go to the gym and you yeah. expect it, if, 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 if spiritual fulfillment is lifting 100 pounds and you show up day one and you expect you're going to curl 100 pounds 10 times, you got something else coming to you. You're going to get hurt. It's going to take you two years, starting with five pounds and building your way up. And eventually, you know, three weeks after five pounds, you're at 10 pounds. It doesn't feel like very much. And then six months later, you're curling 25 pounds and you know, obviously, you're not going to get to 100. That's probably a bad example, but something much more significant than mm-hmm. five. And it's only when you look back on it that you actually realize of all the progress you made. But it's a, it's literally a muscle. Well, not literally. It, it, it's literally like a muscle that needs to be worked on. And so, I think this gets back to something else you and I talk a lot about. I, I would I would argue, and this is a bit on one foot because I'm just thinking about this now, but I'm inclined to argue that the impediment is a lack of example. And the lack of example is because I think there's a lot, I mean, for different reasons, there's a lack of authenticity. And I think when people people have a heightened sense of awareness around genuine, authentic people in a positive way, and there's just people you want to be around. You want to be around people who just shoot you straight, who tell you how they think, or who are respectful, but may disagree, may agree, but they're just like who they are. And there's something spiritual about that. And I think that, you know, for me, for example, many rabbis that I 
learned with and from in high school embodied that. And there was something that was very inspiring. And spirit, the, you know, they seemed to authentically be at a level of spirituality that provided them such meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment that I'd be foolish to not want to get there. Of course I want to get there. Like, look how great their lives seem because they're at this level. And that was very motivating and inspiring. Um, and so I think, again, if we had to break this down into what's the barrier or the impediment, I think two common denominators across maybe much of this conversation are the importance of authenticity and the importance of trying and kind of practicing. And again, the, the idea of, uh, again, of coming back to being philanthropic, like it's easy to say, as I said earlier in the conversation, it's easy to say, well, my last name is not one of the big last names and I'm not worth millions of dollars, so therefore I cannot be philanthropic. You've got the same 24 hours in the day that I have, or that, uh, not, not that I have, that one that everybody has, and you choose to do with that what you want. And it, 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 it takes minutes a day to be philanthropic. It doesn't take, it's not a, it doesn't have to be a meaningful allocation. The challenge is going to be spend a few minutes a day being philanthropic. The challenge will be keeping it to a few minutes a day. That's the irony. No, this has been fabulous. We're done? That's it? No, we, we, could, we could go on. It's we usually go longer. I know. We could go on. This, uh, this has been really, really good. Um, Thank you. This right. is a lot of fun. This is, there's so much to be learned from what we spoke about. And, uh, you know, if our conversation makes a little dent in the uh, spirituality of people's lives and that they uh, pursue it both in the tangible sense of being philanthropic and, and see the small acts that they do as philanthropic, or you know, so in, a, in a more personal sense, in the you know, in engaging in prayer and, and imagination, which I think they're related to each other, because uh, both of them you know, require imagination. Mm-hmm. The imagination of that A- you will not lose much by giving and the v- benefit that will give to the other, the happiness that will provide for you. Thank you very much for your time. This Thank was you. a delight. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To receive notifications of our latest podcasts, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play. We welcome your feedback and thoughts on our website, anewconvo.com, that is A-N-E-W-C-O-N-V-O.com, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash anewconvo. Have a great day.